Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I want to start this episode by telling you just the very beginning of a story I recently heard about a guy named Alex Kogan, born in 1986 into a Jewish family in the Soviet Union. After the collapse in 1991, the government loses control and Jews are even less safe than before. Alex's dad starts getting death threats. So he up and moves his entire family, four generations of Kogans, to New York City. In 1994, Alex enters first grade in a Brooklyn public school. He's conspicuous, way taller than the other kids. He speaks no English. He's also got a talent for math and science. Once his teachers can understand him, they think he has the makings of a gifted physicist. Life's not hard for him, but as he grows up, he begins to see that it isn't always easy for everybody else. Six months after they'd arrived in the United States, his great-grandmother had jumped from their apartment window to her death. His parents, the loves of each other's lives, split up. Alex cries every night until they get back together. He enters high school, and one of his close friends attempts suicide. Another becomes clinically depressed. Alex begins to read psychology. He's a math and science kid but he's getting more and more curious about human nature. And the first time I met him, and I really remember it very distinctly, because he almost always wore these giant basketball shorts, <laughs> no matter what the weather. And, you know, he's terribly dressed, like a lot of Berkeley undergrads, and, you know, and basketball shoes. That's Dacker Keltner, the psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, who runs something called the Greater Good Science Center, where they study human emotion. We heard from him in episode one. Alex Kogan was a shambolic six-foot-four-inch freshman back in 2005 when he knocked on Dacker's office door and said he'd like for Dacker to teach him. Emotions fascinated him. He'd come to Cal to study physics, but he'd been thinking about love, 
about the distinction between loving and being loved. He wanted to study it the way you'd study a quark. And Alex came in and he said, you know, I have seven kinds of love that I'm going to put people into. I was like, wow, that's interesting. And then there are 12 variations uh, of, I forgot what the the other factor was that or set of conditions that he wanted to create. And there were 84 different conditions in his study. So he's going to study seven different kinds of love. <laughs> and he's going to study all these different variables that would, would maybe predict right. the, the force of the love, the yeah. power of the love. Exactly. So he's, he's about to make love more complicated than it's ever been made. <laughs> so it sounds like, right? He was going to confound our understanding of love. Dacker talks Alex out of that idea. But this kid is so smart and original and full of energy. And so Dacker takes him in. And it isn't long before Alex is finding things to do that no one else is doing. For instance, the thing that he does after they discover a gene that's associated with human kindness. And Alex did this cool paper where he showed if you present videotapes of people who have that gene or this variant of a gene, that makes them kind, and I am an observer, and I see one of those people for 20 seconds on video, I trust them, right? I'm like, this guy, I go to battle with this guy, right? I trust this guy. By the time Alex graduates from Cal, he's established himself as the most promising student in the entire psychology department, and the most unusual. Just this big, sweet-natured guy with a serious talent for math and statistics and a desire to study huge questions like, what is love? When he left, and he's so unconventional, Michael, he could have gone to any graduate program in the country, and he chooses the University of Hong Kong. I'm like, what? Because he met this woman or got engaged. and Fell in love. Yeah, fell in love. But Dacker and Alex stay in touch. They collaborate on a few papers. They're both interested in big questions about human nature. At the same time, social media has started to create a new way to study those questions. In late 2012, Facebook invites Dacker to visit and asks him to create a bunch of new emojis, ones that better convey actual emotions. When Dacker sees what Facebook knows about its users, he's blown away. This could be the greatest data source that will ever exist. Uh, And it would help us answer questions from the scientific perspective like, Um, How does disease spread in some neighborhoods but not others? Uh, What predicts heart attacks? Um, Where does hate crime, where is it likely to happen, right? That was all tractable with the data that they had. Meanwhile, Alex had moved to England to teach at Cambridge University. He was still researching the same stuff, the positive emotions. And he, too, was seeing possibilities in the new social media data. And I was at Facebook doing my consulting work, and I saw Alex there. I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he's everywhere, you know. So he's like, oh, I'm working on this other project, and he told me about it. Alex Kogan told Dacker that he wanted to use Facebook to study things like love and happiness. For example, you might be able to take a fairly small sample of data, say the likes of 10,000 Facebook users, to make discoveries about those emotions in entire countries. The math was complicated enough that Dacker himself didn't fully understand it. He then forgot all about it. Until one day, a year or so later, when Alex Kogan called him up. He calls me after Trump's elected, and he says, I think I've done something that was part of this election. And I was like, okay, well, let's talk. What is it? And he said, I created this mechanism that was purchased 
and used in the Trump campaign. He was worried that he actually had had some effect or that he'd be perceived to have had some effect. I don't think he made that distinction. I, right. just, I just think he thought, oh, no. Alex Kogan sensed that he might have a problem. He just had no idea how big it was going to be. I'm Michael Lewis, and this is Against the Rules, a show about the decline of the human referee in American life and what that's doing to our idea of fairness. Today, I want to talk about an entire species of refs, one that's nearing extinction, whom no one will miss until it's too late. I used to be a referee in the big leagues of dictionaries, the American heritage. You've heard of it. The American Heritage has something called the Usage Panel, and I was on it, along with a couple of hundred other word people. Every year we'd get this mass email asking us to judge the latest word controversies, how certain words should be defined or spelled or pronounced. English is always changing, and the dictionary wanted to keep up with the times and sometimes resist them. Was it okay to use unique to mean unusual? Should you say banal or banal or both? This year, I got a different sort of email, saying I'd been fired. They fired the whole panel, so I didn't take it personally. But I still want to know why. As far as I could see, we'd done nothing wrong. Our definitions were still definitive. I called the guy who'd been my boss. As head of the usage panel, what did you do? I I, um, advised on um, people to include uh, on the usage panel. Uh, Occasionally people die and uh, or occasionally people would simply not respond to the questionnaire for several years running and we'd want to replace them. His name is Steven Pinker. Yes, that Steven Pinker, Harvard psychologist and author of many best-selling books. In the case of disputed usage, where people wonder... uh, what what is the correct use? Can I use uh, decimate to to mean uh, destroy most of, or as rumor has it, should it only mean destroy one tenth of? Uh, or what's the best way to use epicenter? Is it just the the center of something, or does it have to mean propagating outward? Of course, if you want to know what epicenter means, you can now just Google it. The internet's been bad for dictionaries; they don't sell the way they used to. But the internet doesn't explain why our panel was fired. We didn't cost the dictionary a dime. We all work for free. Why did they cut it? You know, I, don't, I, I haven't gotten to the bottom of this. Maybe I'll just let someone else chase this one down. I mention this whole situation because it's not unique, which, by the way, should only be used to mean one of a kind. Nothing can be very unique or most unique or even rather unique. A thing can be either banal or banal, but it's either unique or it's not. Anyway, the death of the word referee is not even all that unusual. They're a member of the species of refs that the world now has no use for. The culture refs. The people who referee our most basic interactions. How we should talk. Who we should trust. Or whom we should trust. No one particularly mourns their death until they really need one. We are are in... A suburb of Dallas, uh, at the home of Brian Garner, who has set himself up as a referee of the English language. When and what should you hyphenate? He's the author of um, 
garners modern English usage. Why people shouldn't use flaunt when they mean flout. We've been standing out here for three or four minutes and there's no sign of life. We're going to go knock on his door. All right. All right. What's the difference between specious and spurious? Does it really matter if you, at this very moment, are filled with angst or angst? <laughs> We're a weird crew. Garner's usage manual is now more than 1,200 pages long. The late novelist David Foster Wallace called it a work of genius. This book is so big. You, did you bring your copy? No, I Xeroxed those pages that I wanted. Just the front? Yeah. It wouldn't fit. You don't really expect to find guardians of the English language in Dallas, Texas. Then again, you don't really expect to find them anywhere. That's why I've bothered to find him. It's like flying to Indonesia to see the last of the Sumatran rhinos. And so here we are, between a giant golf course of a lawn and a Monticello of red bricks and Doric columns. Hello. We're praying we're in the right place. Michael Lewis. Good Brian to meet you. Garner, very good to meet you. Thank you for letting us intrude. Glad you can come. Are we come welcome? Garner's house does have a kitchen and bathrooms, almost like a normal house. But it feels like an excuse for him to live in what amounts to a massive library. Floors of books with little ladders so you can climb up and reach them. Thousands upon thousands of mostly very old books about the English language. I've had my coffee already. Okay, good, good. It looks like a robber baron's collection of books, except they look like they've been read. They look like they, 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 aren't, they aren't books bought by the yard. And they also have plastic covers on them, which is a, a little unusual. How many uh, usage experts' books do you have? in this library. I mean, how many different usages? Well, let me show you. He published his first usage guide back in 1998, partly as a protest against the way people talked on TV, which sounds a bit snooty. But Garner's genius was not to set himself up as some kind of elite speaking down to the illiterate masses. His judgments felt like common sense. They relied on data. He classified any change in the language into five stages, ranging from weird new usage to a totally accepted new use of the word. He had lots of information on how people were actually speaking and writing the English language. So this is Webster's first dictionary, yep. 1806, and this just kind of shows the evolution over the 19th century. But I have, so upstairs, these are books on writing, uh, beginning... All the way yeah. over here? Uh-huh. Right. So that, this whole, so that whole wall is... Linguistics and Let's books on. on usage and writing. I think I just assumed that anybody who went this far out of his way to tell other people how to speak and write must have something wrong with him. That if you tracked his interest back to its source, you'd finally arrive at the desire to feel superior. But that's not Garner. His source energy isn't snobbery. It's outrage at an idea cooked up by academic linguistics an idea he'd encountered back as a student at the University of Texas. Descriptivism, it was called. A native speaker of English cannot make a mistake. And ipso facto, if a native speaker says it, it is correct. Uh, that is a very extreme position to take, and I think an indefensible one, and one that I have pretty much set my face against. He set his face against descriptivism, and his face is set against it still. Do you consider yourself a referee? Yes. 
I'm, I'm making judgment calls about, um, and there is a lot of judgment involved, but I'm trying to be a helpful guide to writers and speakers of English. We're now up in a balcony gazing down at an amphitheater of books about the English language. He's got a whole other collection of books out back where the pool house should be, in a building that's an exact replica of the room in England in which the Oxford English Dictionary was created. I pulled down an especially decrepit-looking book by someone I've never heard of, Lindley Murray. Now, Lindley Murray is kind of a hero of mine, interesting guy. He was a New York lawyer. In 1784, he moved to York, England, because he didn't like the revolution. And a lot of Americans actually moved to England because they didn't appreciate what was going on. Lin-Manuel Miranda left that out of Hamilton. I guess so. (laughs) And so these two shelves are all Various editions of Murray's grammar. Yeah. And Brian Garner seems to have all of them. So Murray, in 1795, he stopped practicing law and he wrote... Murray's English Grammar for a Quaker girls' school in York, and it became the best-selling book in the English language other than the Bible for the first 50 years of the 19th century. He sold over 13 million copies of his English Grammar. Every household needed an English Grammar and a Bible. 13 million copies. The joint population of Great Britain and the United States in 1800 was only 15 million. But back then, people threw money at language refs. Noah Webster got rich from his dictionary. So did Fowler and Follett and Partridge and scores of others from their grammars and usage guides. Strunk and White have sold 10 million copies of their style manual. There was a time not long ago when a writer could get paid to write about how to write. And the American Heritage Dictionary used to brag about its usage panel. But Brian Garner is in the wrong century. How many copies of Garner's modern English usage have sold? I don't know exactly, but, but it's fewer than pal- a million. Paltry. Brian Garner has a really nice house, but his usage manual doesn't pay his mortgage. He gives writing seminars for lawyers. The rest of his market has mostly vanished. I mentioned Barnes & Noble, but I... I haven't singled anybody out in particular, although I kind of did. When the first two editions of my usage book came out, usage book is passe, we're not going to stock it. I mean, that has a major effect. And they said, no, we've made the decision that really this category is defunct. The usage book is a defunct category. I grab another one of his old books and flip through it. Some 19th century guide to pronunciation. The idea that anyone would write much less pay money for a pronunciation guide, well, it's preposterous and preposterous. It is an interesting fact, and one not sufficiently realized, that a person who has a pronunciation of his own for a word is very apt to take it for granted that he hears all others pronounce it in the same manner, when in fact his own method is entirely peculiar to himself. That it remains true, does it not? It does remain true, but also talk about making people incredibly uncomfortable and fearful of what, what's coming out of their mouths. That's right. That's what he's doing. People used to feel uneasy about how they used the language. They didn't want to sound stupid or uneducated. Now they feel uneasy about anyone who would presume to judge how they're using the language. An old anxiety has been replaced by something else, a suspicion of the individual ref. 
People still judge other people by what they say and how they say it, but they do it differently, without reference to a higher authority, but to the crowd. My own bank here in Dallas, every time there would be any activity on one of my accounts, I'd get an email message, dear, dear Mr. Garner, semicolon. And I, I, I called my banker. I said, by the way, you know, you've got hundreds of these things, presumably thousands going out by the day, dear customer, semicolon. And uh, I said, you know, it's, it's got to be either a comma or a colon. He said, could you put that in writing? And uh, I said, sure, I'll even give you some authorities. And I cited Garner's Modern English Usage and um, a couple, couple of other uh, authorities on this point of punctuation. It's a pretty elementary point. Yep, he did that. I mean, who else is there to cite? But the incorrectly punctuated letters just kept coming. Still, I was getting dozens every week of Dear Mr. Garner semicolon. And, and it was, I was about to change banks over this because it, it's, it's, it's a little upsetting to think I'm doing business with people who are doing something so egregiously bad. And they didn't change it for about a month. And so I called him and I said, what's going on? He said, well... You know, I, I showed it to some of the people here at the bank, but we have a dispute about whether it should be a semicolon or a colon, and so we just left it. But that, that is a demotic view. Your, your opinion is as good as mine. Anybody's opinion is as good as somebody else. Demotic. Now there is a word derived from an ancient Greek word meaning popular. That's how the language is generally refereed, by popular opinion. Inside Garner's bank, by popular opinion, it was okay to send out letters teeming with semicolons that didn't belong. It's obviously not that big a deal. I mean, you can still understand what the bank was trying to say. Plus, it's sort of freeing to rid ourselves of this expert language ref, this annoying little school-marmy voice in your head. On the other hand, what happens when that little voice ceases to exist? And not just that little voice, but the other little voices like it. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility. 
meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first-place winner in the industry category at last year's Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and I was the public editor of the New York Times. And what's a public editor? I just asked that to loosen her up. I knew the answer. The public editor is the ombudsman, the neutral party inside the news organization, whose job is to make judgments about the news in the same possibly irritating way that Brian Garner makes judgments about the language, to call out the paper when it screws up. Sullivan did that at the New York Times from 2012 until the spring of 2016 when she left. A year later, the Times just got rid of its public editor altogether. So I would love for you to explain to me um, the importance of ombudsmen, wh why they exist in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, for example, and this is not the only role, but let's just say someone thinks a correction should be made in a news story. And the people who are in charge of that say, well, no, we're not going to do that because we're convinced it's right. So then they could come to the ombudsman and say, what do you think here? The thing about the job is that it's, it has to be independent. I had no editor. I mean, I had a copy editor. And, I, and the, my copy editor, great person, would say to me, you sure you want to say it that way? Or don't you think going a little too far there? But he couldn't tell me not to do it. Sullivan was not just a good ombudsman. She was a famously good one. She made a big deal about reporters who let sources approve their quotes. She called out the Times for its policies allowing anonymous sources, especially in stories about national politics. Everyone in the newsroom read and feared her. And that probably prevented a lot of distorted or unfair stuff from ever getting into print. But the role she played is dying. The Washington Post got rid of their ombudsman in 2013 and the New York Times in 2017. Even ESPN had one and got rid of it. And why, so why has it been in decline? If you ask the media organizations, the news organizations who have discontinued their ombudsperson roles, they would say 
almost to a person, they would say, it's not necessary anymore because there's so much criticism in the digital world, um, on Twitter and elsewhere. There's so many voices. There's so many ways to get a complaint or a point of view out there that we don't need to have someone that we pay to criticize us internally. You don't need a news ref anymore because in the new media market, the crowd can do the refing. The Times only created the ombudsman role back in 2003. The reasoning then was the modern media market, the internet, cable TV, the speeding up of the news cycle. That was all creating pressures that led to some really sensational screw-ups by the New York Times. They printed a bunch of stories on the front page by a reporter named Jason Blair. He later confessed that he just made up quotes and entire scenes. They printed stories saying that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction when he didn't. Did, did you, while you were there, was there, a, did you have a sense that there was a decline in, in the need for, for you to do this job? Was there, no. a, or were there like less things coming oh, in? No, to, no, more, if anything. But there was this belief in the air that the crowd could do the job. And why pay a genuinely independent news referee when you could get the crowd to do the job for free? Do you ever read it? Does, does anything ever cause a story to smell for you? You go, there's something wrong here. It's well, the kind of thing that if I were there in my job, I'd be getting emails about. Oh, yes, absolutely. You can see those coming uh, a mile away. Now I'm going to finish the story of Alex Kogan the young psychologist born in the Soviet Union who started out in physics and ended up in love. Along with a bunch of other researchers and app builders, he'd signed an agreement with Facebook to study its users. It wasn't cheap to do. Alex paid the subjects of his studies through some survey company. He asked permission to let him study overall patterns of what they liked and how they used emojis. He hoped that the data might yield all kinds of insights or help address the odd questions that Alex had a talent for raising. Like, what is the difference between loving and being loved? Fast forward to, I'd say, winter of 2014. And one of the PhD students in my department at Cambridge says, hey, I've been consulting for this company. Um, they'd really love to meet you and get like a little consulting help from you. Would you be interested? I'm like, sure. Meet Alex Kogan, student of love. The big carrot for me here was that they were going to pay for a really big data collection effort. So they were going to pay something like $800,000 so we could get all this data and I could keep it to do my research. And that was really exciting to me because, hey, this was a really fast way to get a really nice grant. So I set up a meeting with this company called SEL, which would eventually become Cambridge Analytica. Yes, that Cambridge Analytica. It has nothing to do with Cambridge University. It was just a little-known political consulting firm trying to horn in on the lucrative business of advising presidential campaigns. Yeah, so um, we're really looking at page likes. And the reason we focused in on page likes was there's a few papers published at that point that showed that, hey, you could take people's page likes and use them to predict their personalities with some level of accuracy. The company asked Alex if he could classify people by five personality traits, extroversion, agreeableness, openness, and so on. Use their Facebook data to determine which little personality buckets they fell into. Kind of routine stuff for him. 
What caught Alex's interest was the chance to make other studies of the same people. Why do you need that much money to collect the data? Paying participants. So the way we usually recruit uh, participants is we say like, hey, please answer 20 minutes of questionnaires for us and we'll give you a few dollars for your time. Um, And in this case, we got something like 200,000 people to go and give us 20 minutes of their time and we paid them around four bucks each. He didn't even need to go find these people. They found him through websites where people offer to be lab rats for researchers in exchange for cash or prizes. Alex gave them cash. They gave Alex access to their Facebook data, which I guess tells you that a lot of people are happy to put a price on their privacy. Anyway, Cambridge Analytica's idea wasn't even all that original. The Obama campaign claimed to have done the same thing with Facebook data back in 2012, though on a smaller scale. But Alex figured out pretty quickly just how hard it was to do what his client wanted. You couldn't really predict much about people using their Facebook data. Or at least he couldn't. We started asking the question of like, well, how often are we right? And so there's five personality dimensions. And we said like, okay, for what percentage of people do we get all five personality categories correct? We found it was like 1%. How did you even check that, though? How do you find out whether someone is an extrovert? The 200,000 that provided us the personality scores. Because those 200,000 people that authorized the app filled out the personality quiz. And then we could be like, okay, let's go and see how these people actually answered. And let's see what we predicted. And we could compare it. So assuming they know their personality, and that was right, you got it right 1% of the time. 1% of the time. I'm going to break that down for you. Cambridge Analytica had Alex Kogan collecting and compiling Facebook data in a way that was incredibly useless. I think we got halfway through the project and realized, you know, this probably doesn't work that well. But at that point, you know, we're contractually obligated to give them the data and they were still interested. But here was the crazy thing. The consulting firm didn't care whether it worked or it didn't. They were getting paid pots of money by Ted Cruz's presidential campaign who were trying to reach voters on social media. The Cruz campaign didn't seem to know that this stuff didn't work. With a heavy heart, but with boundless optimism. Then Ted Cruz lost the Republican primary to Donald Trump. We are suspending our campaign. Cambridge Analytica had used Alex's useless predictions to help the loser to lose. Now, amazingly, they sold their services to the winner. Alex never learned whether the Trump campaign actually ever used his data. But in the end, that didn't matter. And when Donald Trump became president, uh, a lot of folks thought the incredible had happened. So they started looking for incredible explanations. Could this same data have been possibly used to win this election? Because, like, how else could this possibly have happened? So folks are looking for, like, where's the evil genius that could have possibly caused all this? That was the moment Alex called his old teacher, Dacker Keltner, who gave him what sounded like good advice. I told him, like, keep a low profile um, and just try to stay out of the conversation. And that advice mostly worked, right up until early 2018. First, our chief business correspondent, Rebecca Jarvis, has the latest. He's the scientist at the heart of the Facebook privacy scandal. And then the drama unfolded researcher at the University of Cambridge. They finally realized that I was born in the Soviet Union. 14 to collect the data of millions.
As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert teams of nerds have the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. About a week before the stories break, the New York Times and the Guardian email me with a bunch of questions about like the project uh, and also whether I might be a Russian spy. Now, I did want to ask them, like, guys, if I am actually a Russian spy, do you think, like, a direct question was going to trip me up and I'm going to say, you got me? Yes, I'm a Russian spy. It's now April 2018. Alex Kogan's thinking, surely someone will step in and sort this out. Some neutral third party, some grown-up. Inside the New York Times, maybe. Someone would just stop and think about it. He was an academic, using some political consulting money to make useless predictions about people's personalities, while also funding his own studies on the side. He'd signed this agreement with Facebook, the one that spelled out how he could interact with its users, and the company was okay with everything he'd been doing. Facebook had explicitly agreed to let him use Facebook data, not just for academic research, but for commerce, if he could find some business use for it. When reporters called him, he'd say, look at the agreement. Call Facebook. They'll tell you the truth. 
But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. That's Mark Zuckerberg on TV. Not looking like he wants to tell anybody the truth. Facebook goes on the defensive. They do a press release, basically say, like, we've banned Cambridge Analytica, we've banned Kogan. They basically also say that, you know, Kogan here told us it was for academic research, and that's why we let him do it, which wasn't true at all. We need to make sure that people aren't using it to harm other people. Facebook wanted people to believe it was a victim of this data thief, when in fact it had given Alex permission to do exactly what he did. But then Facebook was created to be an unrefereed space. It allowed its users to do and say pretty much whatever they pleased and took no responsibility for the consequences. Now the world was furious with Facebook for not refing itself. And so it panicked and looked for someone else to blame. Alex Kogan had set out in life to study our positive emotions. He now got his lesson in the other kind. Anger. Mistrust. All these reporters were now calling him to ask these very weird hostile questions like why he changed his last name after he'd gotten married. We wanted to find something uh, that symbolized both our religious sides and our scientific sides, because we're both scientists and religious. And we landed this idea of light. And they're like, oh, Spectrum is like light. And then we heard the last name Spectre, and we're like, oh, that's really cool. Let's do that. So we changed the last name to Spectre. Bad luck have it. Spectre is also the evil organization from James Bond. I got a lot of questions from a lot of journalists saying like, hey, this whole Spectre thing is mighty suspicious. I just say this, that if you're planning to do something sinister, if you're even vaguely considering the possibility, the last thing you should do is change your last name to Spectre. It's like naming a restaurant Salmonella. Maybe that's just me. All the little details of Alex Kogan's life had now become evidence for the prosecution. No one even had to come out and say that Alex Kogan was a spy. The Guardian ran graphics and little arrows, pointing from a picture of Red Square to a picture of Alex Kogan. What? The Russia connection. I woke up that day to like 200 emails from pretty much every outlet in the world. CNN starts trying to track me down. Like, I start getting phone calls from, like, my old house in San Francisco that CNN is, like, poking around trying to find me. And then they show up at my door. (laughs) The story of Alex Kogan and Cambridge Analytica went viral. Before it ever really got checked, for whether it made any sense, it was reft by the crowd. The crowd just decided that it liked the story and ran with it. The U.S. government started to knock on my door. We got, you know questions from the U.S. Senate, the House, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the, the British Parliament reached out. And I learned you can't really talk to the government as a private citizen. So like financially, like completely wiped me out and like massive debt now in terms of the legal bills. The, as far as the academic career, pretty much over. A promising academic career went poof, just like that. All he's got left is the possibility of writing a memoir of the experience and a lawsuit against Facebook accusing the company of defamation, which he filed a few months after we spoke. I met with a a guy who uh, 
is doing a documentary about all of this. And he's like, you know, it's crazy. I was warned, and I'm not going to tell you by who, but it's somebody prominent. But I was warned when I'm talking to you to be really careful because you're a trained covert agent from Russia and you would tap my phone. I think of Alex Kogan as a curious kind of victim, even if he refuses to sound anything but cheery about his situation. He's what happens when the refs are banished from the news, when people are encouraged to believe whatever it is they want to believe. It's not that the news was once perfectly refereed, and now it's not, or that there weren't ever fake stories, or that people haven't always believed all kinds of bullshit. But there's an obvious antidote, the neutral third party, the independent authority, the referee, who makes it more difficult, if only just a little bit, for an easy lie to replace a complicated truth. Yet the job doesn't exist. The market doesn't want some neutral third party interfering with our ability to create our own truths, to render our own meanings, to construct our own realities. As we decline, stage by stage... Against the Rules is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. The show is produced by Audrey Dilling and Catherine Girardot, with research assistance from Zoe Oliver-Gray and Beth Johnson. Our editor is Julia Barton. Mia Lobel is our executive producer. Our theme was composed by Nick Bertel, with additional scoring by Seth Samuel. Mastering by Jason Gambrell. Our show was recorded by Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios at UC Berkeley. Special thanks to our founders, Jacob Weisberg and Malcolm Gladwell. Give me an example of a stage, something that's at stage one now. Um, using climatic in the sense climactic. This was the climatic point of the play. Meaning well, climate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> climatic, That's going on now? I mean, they're both words. I had oh, no idea. Absolutely. Um, That's and, horrible. And if you, if you take the phrase, so anticlimactic is the word, is an anticlimax. But if you search anticlimactic, versus anticlimactic, the ratio, and that's the, you have to contextualize these searches. There's no reason to use anticlimactic at all, uh, but it's 28 to one in print sources. In favor of anticlimactic? In favor of anticlimactic, but the fact that the other one appears once every 28 times. is shocking. That it, yeah, it is. So this is like linguistic epidemiology. It begins to spread. A lot of us have snakes in the grass. We call them garter snakes. And garter snakes have little stripes on them that look like garters. But a lot of people misheard that and started saying garden snake. They thought it was a, it's a garden, that's oh, a, just a regular harmless garden snake. Well, it's a garter snake. Um, that is, uh, wow. Well, that's a problem. That's eight to one. Because if that snake in the garden is a rattlesnake. That's right. There could be a real. Oh, I've got a. 
I've got a garden snake out there. Oh, good. I don't have to wear any protective clothing. I'll go catch it. Well, you know, that these are problems. People would say, well, you and I just made that up. Give me an example of the stage four. Stage four, um, misspelling minuscule as if it were miniskirt. Minuscule is M-I-N-U-S-C-U-L-E. But that's two to one in print now. Or anti-venin. Now, here's one. Anti-venin, if you get bitten by not a garter snake, but by a rattlesnake, you need anti-venin, V-E-N-I-N. But the noun for what the snake puts into you is venom. And so a lot of people, uh, you know, this is a, is it really worth preserving? I don't know. It's traditional English, anti-venin, and it comes from a Latin form. Uh, but people have started saying anti-venom, and that one is 1.2 to 1 in favor of anti-venom, but that's one where I continue to recommend the traditional form anti-venin. So you go into the garden and you pick up the snake because you think it's a garden snake and you're bit by the rattlesnake and you go- No, no to you're bitten. You're bitten you're by the- bitten. Thank you very much. Bitten by the rattlesnake and you're taken to the hospital and by the time they figure out what you're trying to ask for because you're asking for anti-venom and they don't have any, uh, you're dead. Yeah, because you mispronounced it. Sorry, we're not giving you any. All we have is anti-venom. We don't have any anti-venom. And which, By the way, I don't normally correct people, but forgive me for that. That's bitten, all right. I, that bitten thing. Thank you very much. Sure. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 